Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to move beyond just listening into active support, you can become a member. It's very easy to do. Just go to patreon.com slash a brief chat, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash a brief chat. For a buck a month, you will get early access to every episode, plus a weekly email from me telling you about my life and giving you all kinds of interesting links and things. And if you go up to the $5 a month level, you'll get those things, plus you'll get an extra monthly bonus bonus episode, which could be a grab bag of stuff from the 20 years of audio that I've been recording. I guess it's even longer now, but let's not think about that. Or it could be brand new audio talking about whatever's on my mind. So again, go to patreon.com slash a brief chat if you'd like to become a member. And thank you so much to everybody who is already doing that. Back in October of 2019, when this show was daily every weekday and it was 10 minutes or less, I wrote a five-part essay, which I then made an audio recording of for a brief chat, about my religious history. It's something that I have thought about a ton over my life, and I've gone through a bunch of experiences on the path that I've been on. And so I made these five short episodes, but that was three and a half years ago, and a lot has changed since then. So on this episode today, rather than an interview, what I've done is I've put those five episodes together. I've taken off all the intros and outros, and I've put just a tiny little bit of music in between each segment, but I've put them all together so that you've got about a half an hour of those original shows. And then at the end, I'm going to put another segment, not written out ahead of time like those were, but just extemporaneous, talking about where I'm at today and why. Just a few notes before you listen to these segments from back in 2019. I mentioned Jen in them, and uh, Jen was my first wife. And then I mentioned Owen, and Owen was my second life partner. The uh, segments, as I mentioned, are divided by just a little bit of music, and each one, you know, says, you'll hear the next part tomorrow, but of course you'll hear it immediately following. (laughs) So let's dive back to October of 2019 and the first segment in the story of my religious history. Here we go. Religion is a really big topic in my life. It colors so much of what I do and how I think and who I am. It does that both by its presence and its absence, and its role in my life has changed greatly over the years. My connection to organized religion started as a baby when I was baptized in 1973 as a Catholic at St. Anne's Roman Catholic Church in my hometown of Lenox, Massachusetts. I think my Aunt Linda was my godmother, and I believe a friend of my biological father was my godfather. I can't remember his name, though. I don't remember my baptism, of course, but I know it happened. It would be several more years before religion made an impression on me in the person of Father Edgar Holden. I was around five years old when I met Father Ed. He was a Franciscan friar and a friend of my Aunt Linda, who you met on episodes 21, 22, and 23. I'm fairly sure they knew one another from the Catholic school at which my aunt taught. In any case, Father Ed was the first person I ever wanted to be like. When he walked into a room, he had a presence, and people automatically listened to him and deferred to him. He was a very funny guy. He didn't ever act haughty or judgmental, at least not that I ever saw. But even as a little kid, I could feel the way things changed when he was around, and I wanted people to look at me that way, too. Also, he called me Jaybird, which at the time I thought was cool. 
At this point, my family was Catholic. We went to Mass, and I started my school life in Catholic schools. I always liked the insides of churches. They felt very safe. I don't remember a lot about the early years of my life as a Catholic. My grandparents very rarely went to church, but my grandmother, Dorothy Flanders, was very devout in her own personal way. She was never far from a set of rosary beads, and she was a great believer in praying novenas when someone in the family needed help. The word novena comes from the Latin word for nine, because novenas are prayers made for nine consecutive days, generally to ask for help or healing. As I remember it, my grandmother would pray these prayers, and then after the ninth day, she'd put a notice in the paper thanking God or a saint for granting the prayer. I think this public acknowledgement was to her an important and necessary part of the process. My grandma also prayed, as many Catholics did in the day, to St. Anthony when things were lost. I did too, as a matter of fact. When I would visit my grandparents in Plymouth, Massachusetts, my grandpa would sometimes take me to Mass. I think maybe he went on his own when I wasn't around, but I know that my grandmother never went. I don't know why she didn't, though. She was the kind of person who formed quick opinions, and she held on to them forever, so perhaps she'd been offended by something in church once and decided to stop going. That's just a guess on my part, though. I was a Catholic kid long enough to go through First Communion, which is the celebration of the first time you're allowed to go up to the altar to receive the communion wafer from the priest. This was around second grade, when I was still in Catholic school. I got a small New Testament for my First Communion from one of my relatives, perhaps my cousins, the Breens. It had a white cover that looked almost like Mother of Pearl. It really glistened in the light, I remember. I also received a Bible that had a zip-around cover and tissue-thin pages. In my memory, it had a giraffe on the cover. I think a lot of animals, maybe Jesus among some animals. That could be wrong, though. I do remember that I had never seen pages that thin before. And everything that Jesus said was in red type. During this time, I had a statue of Jesus in my room. He was pointing at his chest with one hand, and his heart was there, visible. You know, like a depiction of his heart. It didn't look anatomically accurate. This image was called the Sacred, and it still is called, the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And I might have had it because the school I attended, I think, was called Sacred Heart. That sounds right, although my memory of those days is very fuzzy. I do know that I said prayers at night sometimes in front of that Jesus statue for a number of years. Sometime around second grade, I started wearing a scapular. This was a necklace of sorts. It had two small pieces of cloth joined together by ribbons or strings or something. One piece of cloth rested on your chest, you know, under your clothing, and the other rested on your back. There was religious text of some sort on one of the pieces, and I think an image on the other, but I can't remember anymore what either of them were. I don't remember where I first got a scapular, or how I even knew they existed, either. I think maybe my cousin Lynn might have had something to do with it, one of the Breens. I think she wore one, too? I don't know. Lynn, you'll have to correct me. Again, I'm very fuzzy on this period of my life. The scapular was the first religious accessory I remember wearing. It made me feel safe and devout and special. No one could see it, so it was also like my secret with God. I enjoyed that occasional feeling of the cloth against my skin under my clothes, a reminder that God was there watching over me. I wear religious accessories now too, though of a different nature, more about that in a future episode. 
Catholicism is a pretty easy religion for kids. There's stuff to memorize, sure, but once you've got that down, every Mass is pretty much the same. The homily, which is the Catholic term for a sermon, that changes and you sing some different songs from week to week, but for the most part, it's a well-ordered ceremony of recitation, response, kneeling, and other things any kid can figure out with a little practice. It's not easy to sit still all that time, but if you're fascinated by the whole procedure, as I was, it's not that hard either. It's nowhere near as difficult as Zen practice, for example, which involves sitting in complete stillness and silence for long periods of time. As far as I can remember, I was happy being a Catholic kid. I liked the trappings of the religion, and the prayers for saintly intervention gave a feeling of having a direct connection to something larger than oneself. It was like a warm blanket wrapped around my world. I thought many times as a child of becoming a priest. Throughout my childhood, I had Father Ed's example as a guide, although we definitely saw him much less after we moved from Massachusetts to New York. And of course, I saw priests every week in church, and sometimes in school too, though most of the teachers were nuns. I think the Sisters of St. Joseph ran the second Catholic school I went to. In any case, being a priest seemed like a pretty good gig. But then... Because of the Boy Scouts, we changed teams. And you'll hear that story tomorrow. I never wanted to be a Boy Scout. My parents were into it, though, particularly my dad, so I became a Cub Scout while I was still in Catholic school, and then I stuck with it until I had a chance to exit. I was still a Boy Scout in fifth grade when we moved to Canandaigua, a small town about 45 minutes southeast of Rochester, New York. My dad worked at the airport in Rochester, but my folks wanted more land and a country setting, so they had a log home built on a dirt road on a plot with seven acres of land and a barn that dated back to the early 19th century. When we moved to Canandaigua, I switched from Catholic school to public school. I'm not 100% sure why. Now I think that maybe it was for financial reasons, because I'm sure Catholic school was expensive. We still attended Catholic Mass on Sundays, though. My dad had been raised Methodist, but we went to Mass instead, and he changed over when he married my mom because I think she cared about it more than he did. Canandaigua has a lot of churches. In fact, at one four-way intersection on the corner of Maine and Gibson, there are churches on each corner, Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Congregational, plus lots more scattered throughout the town. The Methodist Church was home to Scout Sunday, an annual church service in celebration of Boy Scouts and their families. Maybe Girl Scouts, too, I don't really remember. But in any case, on one Sunday, we trooped over to the Methodist Church and met the pastor, David Durham, and his assistant pastor, John Holt. We sat in the Methodist sanctuary and listened to the service, and I'm sure it was all very nice, but we were Catholics, and we continued to attend Catholic Mass on the other 51 Sundays of the year. Then the next year rolled around, and we went back across the street for Scout Sunday. When we walked in, David greeted all of us by name. My mom was dumbstruck. We had been attending St. Mary's Catholic Church across the street for more than a year, and she was quite sure none of the priests or staff knew who we were other than to send a monthly envelope asking for money. She converted to being a Methodist on the spot, and we never set foot in St. Mary's again. The First United Methodist Church was a very different beast from the Catholic solemnity we were used to. First of all, it just looked different. White walls on the inside, light-colored wood pews with a happy choir off to one side. None of the invisible choir on the balcony and the stations of the cross that had been our surroundings before. 
David and John were also very different from most of the priests we knew, except perhaps Father Ed. David was a genius, pure and simple. In my memory, he spoke several languages and could read even more than that, and he was very concerned with what the Bible actually said and how we should think about it. He was also a very ecumenical thinker and one of the more liberal religious people I knew at the time. I remember that he always signed off his letters in the church bulletin with the word shalom. Thinking about what the Bible says isn't a very Catholic practice. In Catholicism, priests are generally seen as the keepers of knowledge and the stand-ins between the rabble and God. At least that's how Catholicism was in the churches that I attended. I know liberation theology is very different, but there definitely was not any of that any place that I ever was. John was even further outside the mainstream of my religious experience. He was the assistant pastor, and he had come to the church after years as an executive in the steel industry, I think in Pittsburgh. He was joyous and wacky and completely changed my view of what it was possible to do while wearing clerical robes. He usually handled the children's sermon in the middle of the service, and you never knew what was going to happen. One Sunday, for example, he rode down the center aisle of the sanctuary on a bicycle with a rubber chicken sitting proudly in the bike basket. I was already quite a ham by this point in my life, and when I saw John, I realized it was possible to be both religious and a performer at the same time. Now, this might seem like old hat to folks who grew up in Southern churches or in the Black church, but to me, it was, if you'll forgive the term, a revelation. I did all the things a devout kid did. I went to Sunday school, I joined youth group, I went to Young Life Christian Camp one summer. Most of my friends and my parents' friends were people that we knew from church. I played in a band in a church dance, our family played host to one of the courses during the annual progressive dinner when people would make their way from house to house to eat and hang out. I was confirmed into the Methodist church as a young teen, I think I was maybe 13 or 14. I had started volunteering for the chaplain service at the local VA hospital to earn a Boy Scout merit badge, and my confirmation sponsor was one of the ministers from the VA. He gave me an old 19th century hymnal as a gift. I can clearly remember kneeling at the altar with the other teens who were being confirmed and feeling my sponsor's hand on the back of my head as he stood behind me during the blessing. I guess that doesn't sound that great when you say it like that, but in any case, it was very beautiful and moving to me. By this point, I was quite sure I wanted to be a minister. John, the assistant pastor, was still in divinity school in Rochester, and he took me with him to audit some of his classes so I could see what it was all about. I was, to use Owen's phrase, very down with Jesus. And then I joined marching band and switched teams yet again. That story is on tomorrow's episode. Who knew that playing the clarinet would end my relationship with God? Okay, it wasn't the clarinet itself that did it, although if you've heard bad clarinet playing, it could certainly make you doubt the existence of a benevolent deity. Here's what actually happened. I started high school in the fall of 1987. As school approached, I received sheet music for the marching band practices that were scheduled to start in late summer. I was a clarinet player, but the sheet music I received was for saxophone. So on the first day of marching band practice, I tried to return this music, only to learn that there were too many clarinetists, so I was being forced to switch. 
a senior named TJ Fennelly showed me the basic fingering, and that was that. I now played tenor saxophone. One of the other saxophonists in the band was a junior named Kevin Baird. He had a fuzzy mane of bright red hair, glasses, and wore cargo pants that usually had cassette tapes in the pockets. It was love at first sight. I immediately fell in with Kevin and a few of his friends. Now, these were prog rock guys, and they introduced me to Yes, Rush, Genesis, King Crimson, Pink Floyd, Asia, all music I'd never heard before, having grown up mostly listening to big band music, Nat King Cole, and, you know, whatever my parents put on the radio. Besides being a prog rock fan, though, Kevin was another thing I'd never heard of before, an atheist. He didn't believe in God. To be quite honest, I hadn't even realized that was an option. As soon as he said it, though, it occurred to me that if I really gave it some thought, I didn't believe in God either. I really liked religious ceremonies and fellowship, but if pressed, I didn't think there was actually an invisible man in the sky watching over me and protecting me. With the benefit of hindsight, I now believe that at least some of this change in thinking happened as a result of a childhood full of sadness and depression. My childhood featured a lot of very conditional love, a lot of emotional abuse, and some physical abuse, too. It's hard to look around at a world like that and think that a benevolent, all-powerful, loving being has got your back. It was much easier to believe that life was random and unplanned. And so I became an atheist, too, at the age of 15. There was no ceremony or membership card or secret meeting in the dead of night. I just realized one day that I didn't believe in God, and I told my parents. Much yelling ensued. My mom was incensed. She thought I was hanging out with the wrong crowd and doing it just to spite her. I doubt my dad cared very much. I don't, In fact, I don't remember him ever addressing the subject, though, to be fair, I remember very little from most of my childhood. In high school, being an atheist didn't mean all that much. I stopped doing so many things at church and stopped attending every Sunday, but that might have happened anyway, given that my life was a lot busier. My first high school girlfriend was very religious, and so my lack of faith probably contributed to our breakup, although she also said kissing me was like kissing her brother. My second girlfriend also came from a religious home, but I don't remember any tension there where my own beliefs were concerned. After high school, I moved to Japan, where not being a Christian is by far the dominant state of existence. I had my first exposure to both Buddhism and Shinto in Japan. Other than the occasional ceremony or holiday, though, religion didn't really come up. I remember my host brother, Kazuhiro, saying that most Japanese are atheists except on special occasions. I was in college for one year when I came back from Japan, but my grades weren't what my parents expected, so they gave me a month to find a job, get a car, and move out of their house. I ended up moving in with my friend Chris, whose father had been the Episcopal priest in town. I'd been active with the youth service organization Chris's parents ran when I was a freshman and sophomore. Chris was two years older than I and had already finished his undergraduate degree, during which time he'd also lost his faith. That actually might have happened in high school, I don't really know. But in any case, atheism still didn't come up a lot. I moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1994, and I met my first wife there the following spring. We were married by a justice of the peace in a non-religious ceremony on St. Patrick's Day in 1996. Jen was also an atheist. Her family had occasionally gone to church when she was growing up, but it didn't stick, and she wasn't really interested in any of it. During the course of our marriage, as I became more politically radicalized, my atheism became more important to me. 
This was in large part due to seeing the church as standing in opposition to most of what I believed in and using its power to force particular choices on people, including at the governmental level. For a good long while, I was one of the most obnoxious kinds of atheists, ready to argue with anyone, anytime. I was a big fan of people like Richard Dawkins before it turned out that he was a misogynist and a racist, and of Carl Sagan, of whom I'm still a really big fan. I disregarded religious practices and beliefs with a sneer and a feeling of superiority. In my devotion to rationality, I was dismissive of anything that couldn't be measured and explained. This period of my life lasted through the 90s and into the early 2000s when I suddenly decided that it might be a good idea to sit still on a cushion for a long time to see what happened. More about that tomorrow. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I first encountered Buddhism in 1991 when I moved to Japan for the first time as an exchange student. Other than Catholics and Protestants, I had never encountered any other religion, though of course I knew they existed. My Methodist church had once held a Seder of some sort in observance of Passover, though whether any Jewish religious figures were present, I don't recall. I mostly associate that Seder with horseradish. I'm sure I could Google horseradish and Seder to see if that makes sense, but I think I'll just let the mystery be. Anyway, in Japan, I was surrounded for the first time by people who neither looked like me nor believed what I had been raised to believe. Buddhism and Shinto were the order of the day, maintaining a fairly symbiotic relationship throughout the country for all but the most devout believers. When I traveled or took part in local ceremonies with my host family, we'd often end up at either a Shinto or Buddhist religious site. At one of them, you'd clap your hands twice and bow. At the other, you just bowed. Sometimes you rinsed your hands with a ladle full of cold water, and sometimes you didn't. Sometimes you burned incense, and sometimes you didn't. I was often confused about which rituals went with which place, so I just followed the lead of whoever I was with. And even though I was an atheist, I thought it was the respectful thing to do to take part in these ceremonies. I also remember being struck by the dinnertime ritual in my host family's home. My host dad's mom lived with us in a separate, more traditional part of the house. She taught Japanese dancing there. Each night when dinner was ready, one of us kids would bring a portion of each of the foods on a tray into her room and place it before a small shrine, atop which was a photo of her husband, who had died some years earlier. I thought this was really lovely. I come from a family that has never handled death well, and I liked the respect shown to this dead relative who was, in many ways, still very present in the life of the family. We also traveled on one day of the year to a cemetery where his ashes were interred. We cleaned up the site around his marker and we left an offering of oranges. We also ate a small and very happy lunch ourselves. It was just totally unlike any of the very few cemetery experiences I'd had in the States. When I moved back home, I stuck with my atheism and didn't really think about Buddhism anymore. Then Jen and I ended up moving to Japan in 1996. On our first Christmas, Jen bought me a book about Buddhism. I think it was about the Lotus Sutra, one of the central texts of several different schools of Buddhism. I looked through it, but a lot of it was way over my head. It was aimed more at an academic reader than a lay practitioner of Buddhism. I found it interesting, though, and I decided I'd read more sometime. 
We returned from Japan in 1998, moving around a few times before ending up back in Rochester, New York in 2000. Now, Rochester is home to one of the oldest Zen centers in the United States. The Rochester Zen Center was founded in 1966 by Philip Kaplow, author of The Three Pillars of Zen, and one of the people most responsible for bringing Zen Buddhism to the English-speaking residents of the United States. I was very intrigued, and I decided to attend a beginner's class on Zazen, which is the practice of seated meditation. I had had a very brief experience when we lived in Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Zen Center, but this was my first more formal introduction to Buddhism. I instantly connected with this quiet, contemplative practice. My depression was still undiagnosed, and I was sad and angry quite a lot of the time, and Buddhism seemed to offer a way to deal with my brain as it was, not as some ideal that I wished it could be. The ceremonial aspects of Zen reminded me of my Catholic beginnings, and the Dharma talks, which are kind of the Zen version of a sermon, always seemed directed right at me. I started meditating at night at home in the spare room of our little apartment. I had to keep a kitchen knife in there with me because the door was missing the interior knob and it could only be opened with help from the knife. So I would do prostrations, I would burn incense, and then sit quietly for maybe 20 minutes or so. And I have no idea how I timed it back then in the pre-smartphone era. I think I must have used a kitchen timer. At some point during my Rochester Zen Center experience, I attended a weekend session, which is a period of intensive meditation. During the session, you get up in the wee hours and you meditate all day and into the evening, stopping only to eat and do chores, all of which you do in silence. I was at the Zen Center from Friday afternoon until either Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, and when that session was over, I stopped meditating completely for years. It's kind of hard for me to explain why, especially from this great remove, but I'll give it a shot. I mean, I think the fundamental issue might have been that my rejection of all religion was at war with this newfound devotion to Buddhist practice. Zen Buddhism, as it's usually practiced these days, doesn't come with a god or any supernatural elements, but it still has priests and nuns and temples and altars and statues and rituals and candles and incense and all the trappings of any other religion. And even though I tried referring to it as a philosophy to get around the whole religion issue, I don't think I was ready yet to return to the fold, no matter how different my new sangha was from my old congregation or parish. Fast forward 18 or so years, and I'm recording this episode six feet from an altar atop which sits a large statue of the Buddha. I have a lotus tattooed on my arm. I'm in between two bookshelves filled with Buddhist books. And the story of how I got here is part five of this series. These days, if you ask me where I stand on the religious spectrum, you better have packed a lunch because it will take me a while to explain. I guess the simplest thing to say is that I'm a Buddhist, mostly in the Soto Zen tradition, but with influences from other schools as well. I started and then stopped the process of lay ordination at one point. In recent years, I've also spent time attending Quaker meetings, and I even tried my hand at Catholicism again. Add to that daily tarot readings, and you get... Well, I don't know what you get. I had a habit of browsing the Eastern religion section of any bookstore I was in. 
When I moved to New York City after Jen and I split up in 2010, I came across Stephen Batchelor's recently published Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, a book that outlined Batchelor's thinking about what he called secular Buddhism. This was a real eye-opener for me. Here was a book that married the two sides of my thinking. Confession provided a roadmap for Buddhism that didn't include anything I couldn't stomach. I devoured it and his previous book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, and instantly felt inspired to return to the cushion and sit. Buddhism has been a part of my life ever since. In the smartphone era, I found an app called Meditation Helper. This app operated on the very simple principle that people like to keep a streak going. The app has a widget, you can put it on your home screen, and it shows two numbers, the longest meditation streak you've ever had and the current streak you're on. With this app as motivation, I sat for more than three years without ever missing a day. And this period included a time when I was homeless and on the road constantly. I meditated in bus stations, on park benches, on roadsides, in diners, on strangers' couches, wherever I could sit quietly for 20 or so minutes. And all of this time, I continued to read a ton of Buddhist literature, too. Then, because my behavior is often odd, I missed a day, and I stopped sitting entirely. But unlike my previous periods away from the cushion, I never left Buddhism again. Most Buddhists don't really meditate. Meditation is certainly central to Buddhism here in the West, but in most Asian countries, it's primarily monks and nuns who meditate, not lay people. I continued to do my best to live by the precepts, which are Buddhist behavioral suggestions. I continued to read, and I always kept a small Buddha figurine with me, especially when I traveled. And then at some point, I started sitting again, but not quite as regularly. Nearly two years ago, I started using that app again, and it's been more than 620 days since I last went a day without meditating. For a while, I attended a local Zen center here in central Pennsylvania. I started the process of lay ordination there, but stopped. And again, I'm not 100% sure why, but I think it's because some of my anarchist leanings overtook my desire to be part of a religious organization. But, I mean, to be honest, I'm really still exploring that myself. My friend Mike is a Baptist minister and a union organizer. He performed the wedding ceremony for Owen and me when we got married last year. He once said to me that I was the most religious person he knew. At the time, I rejected that out of hand, but I don't anymore. Remember John Holt? He was the Methodist minister with the rubber chicken. He once told me many years after I'd left the church when I saw him again when I was an adult that I needed to get paid to love people. I remember that really rocked me back on my heels because it sounded so right. In recent years, I've attended a Unitarian church, I thought about divinity school, I spent time with the Quakers, I stuck my head into some Catholic churches again. In the past few weeks, in fact, I've been thinking about attending Quaker meetings again. But I never seem to stick with anything except my personal religious practice. Maybe that's as a result of me rarely sticking with anything, religious or otherwise. Maybe it's a reaction against structure and authority. I don't really know. I still fantasize about being a religious leader or living a monastic life. And I really haven't come to terms with everything that means yet. Since moving to Pennsylvania, I've been experimenting with different ways to redirect my thinking outside its usual patterns. Meditation is certainly one method. 
It's a slow one, but it works. But there are also others. For example, I tried the I Ching for a while, but it didn't really resonate with me. And then I discovered tarot, which really did. I've been pulling a tarot card for nearly a year each day, and I've done a handful of readings for others, too. When we relocate next year, I would really like to get more serious about doing readings for other people. It seems to be one of the ways to get people to sit down across from me in the way a religious person might be able to. If you want to hear a lot more about my tarot experience, go back to episode number 10 and check that out. I guess these days, you know, like so many people, I'm a searcher. I'm a Buddhist, sure, but I'm also inspired by and drawn to other experiences and other ways of thinking. I'm also still really attracted to ceremony and ritual, and yet at the same time, I often rebel against structure. It's all really confusing for me, and I don't know, perhaps I'll never figure it out. But I think it's safe to say at this point that yes, I'm a religious person, whatever that means. So when that all ended, I was still firmly in the Buddhist camp, and I was still living in State College, Pennsylvania, and my life with Owen still seemed to be going just fine. And in the time since then, a lot of things have happened. Not too long after I recorded those episodes, Owen and I moved to Tucson, Arizona. And while I was in Tucson, I started really diligently exploring Catholicism again. In fact, I got to a point where I bought a a book that has kind of daily, almost like a daily personal mass that you celebrate. And you can do it at various times of the day, or you can do it throughout the day. And I did that every day for a while. I didn't go to church because we moved to Tucson right when the pandemic happened, and so churches weren't really happening. But sometimes I would watch a service online, but mostly I did this kind of individual devotional thing, and I continued my Buddhist practice of daily meditation. Then, as will not be news to you unless you're hearing me for the first time right now, toward the end of 2020, Owen and I split up, and I moved into a van, and I traveled the country in various ways and all kinds of places uh, from then to now. And during that time, I ended up working for a church in Vermont, which was fascinating, actually working inside a church, something I had never done before. I had spent a lot of time in churches, but never as an employee. And I was the office manager for uh, the United Church of Christ in Greensboro, Vermont, a very small town. A really lovely progressive church community. Uh, I sometimes attended services and sometimes played music for them. And I was very involved in the life of the church because of my job, kind of the main contact between the church and the community other than the pastor. And I became close to some of the people in that church. Uh, Some of them I'm still close to now. It was a really wonderful experience. Um, I I really loved getting to see a church in a very tiny town, you know, a town of like 700 people, and the way it functioned as the real lifeblood of the community. And to be part of that was was really wonderful. I didn't end up staying in Vermont, but during the time that I was there, having that community was, was really beautiful. Then I went to, well, back on the road, and then I got in another accident in my third van, and I decided to get off the road again, and I ended up going to Albany to look for a job. And while I was in Albany looking for a job, 
I did go to church a couple times. Uh, I went to a church. I found this kind of brand of Catholicism that is not connected to uh, to Rome, so, so to speak. Uh, so they do things like, um, you know, ordain women, allow married priests, uh, ordain LGBTQ plus people. Lots of things that the Catholic Church doesn't do. The kind of, you know, capital C Catholic Church does not do. And so I went there a couple of times and I still was kind of in this flirtation with Catholicism that has gone throughout a lot of my life. And then eventually I found a job in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is the town uh, where I was born in Western Mass. And I went over there, still living in my van. Uh, I worked that job for a while. And while I was in Pittsfield, I was still meditating, but I really wasn't involved anymore in a kind of Catholic exploration at that point. So still meditating, still doing occasional tarot readings for myself. It's actually been a long time since I've done one for someone else. I really enjoyed doing them for other people, uh, but that was kind of early on in my tarot practice. But even up to now, I still do readings for myself from time to time, and I find it a useful way to kind of push my brain out of the patterns that it is normally in. I also, for quite a long time, I had a daily haiku practice for, I think, about 600 days. And that is often a thing that's closely associated with uh, Buddhism, and in particular Zen Buddhism. And I sometimes approached it from that perspective, but also just approached it as another way to slow the world down, to to kind of freeze the world through the, the medium of observation and then recording in the form of these really short poems. So all of that was going on while I was in Pittsfield, and then I ended up coming back to State College. Um, I kind of, in some degree, due to a, a miscommunication between my younger son and I, uh, me thinking he kind of needed me to live here, which he, he really didn't. But I came here anyway, and while I was here, at one point, as I described in the recordings that you just heard, uh, at one point, it happened again that I missed a day of meditation. And when that happened, I realized that I had felt very disconnected from the practice of Buddhism for a long time, that I was doing my daily meditation practice pretty much because I had this widget on my phone that recorded the streak and I didn't want to break it, much the same way that I do the crossword every day or the wordle. And I thought if my meditation practice has devolved to the place where it's on the same level as the daily crossword, then perhaps it's time to re-examine. And so I decided to stop meditating. Around that time, I was getting more involved with posting TikTok videos, and I recorded one in which I talked about thinking that perhaps what had been happening over the course of my life was that all of these various religious experiences, Catholicism and Methodism and atheism and Buddhism and now, all these different religious experiences had been building a lens to help me see the world, and that now I had arrived at a place where, at least in this moment, at this exact moment of my life, that lens is sufficient, and I don't need, at this exact moment, the trappings of religion around it. I can just use the lens and the things that I learned from all of those religions to build the lens, I can use that to look at the world around me. Because if the purpose of the lens is to make one a better person, in other words, so that you spend more of your time trying to make the world better for other people, 
and you find ways to be content in the situations in which you find yourself, even if you are still working to improve those situations. If that's what the lens is about, I do feel like I have at least enough of a view through it at this moment that I don't feel the need to fall back on those trappings. Now, I say that, but it's important to also say that I can always feel like just under the surface of my skin that same religious bent or calling or connection to the universe or whatever it is that I have always felt throughout my entire life. And I can feel it right now as I'm speaking into this microphone. I can feel that little like vibration of energy or pattern of thinking or whatever it is that has been a part of my life from my earliest days. And so I don't know if the place that I'm in right now where I don't have an overt religious practice is where I'm always going to be. As I'm recording this uh, on St. Patrick's Day, 2023, I am about to move in 48 hours to a new town. And uh, I am moving there to start a new job. I don't, as of this recording, have a place to live. Uh, By the time you listen to it, who knows what will be the case. But uh, as of this recording, I don't have a place to live. So I'm moving back into my van. There's going to be a lot of stress associated with that. And in those situations, those are the times when I find myself, I think, in those moments of transition, when I find myself most attracted to religion as a source of comfort. So who knows what will happen when I move to Charlottesville? I also have to say that this Charlottesville move was part of a decision that I made uh, last year, I guess in the fall of last year, to really focus on radio. I had never tried to really build a career in radio, and I decided that, that I would do that. And it's very hard for me to imagine myself building anything for the long term, with the exception of Uh, the relationship that I was most recently in, which I I did really think I was building for the long term. But other than that, it's very hard for me to imagine building things for the long term. And so even as days from now, I'm going to begin this new job in a new city and all of those things, I am still very much having these thoughts about, I don't really know if this is what I am supposed to be doing, or if this is what I will be doing for the long haul, or anything. I just don't know. I don't know anything. (laughs) And I think when you live in that state, which I think is the state that I tend to live in, of I just don't know anything, sometimes having something that can help put a foundation under you is incredibly useful. And I think that's why I get drawn again and again back to Buddhism or attempting Catholicism again or things like the practice of tarot or wanting to be part of various groups. I've always, as much as I am kind of a uh, an introvert and an outsider in some ways, I've also always had this real joiner tendency in me, wanting to be part of movements and other kinds of groups. And I think so much of that comes back to this conditional nature of Uh, the early days of my life when I was never sure if, you know, I was good enough or if I was loved, those kinds of things. And that has kind of spiraled out, I think, into the rest of my life where I have tried to find places to stand that felt like firm ground with varying degrees of success, but never any lasting success. So who's to say what will come next? Certainly not me. 
and you folks will be among the first to find out whatever does come next, but I'm not really sure what it's going to be. I, as always, am interested to find out. I am sometimes excited, I'm sometimes terrified, I'm sometimes depressed. My sister always says, I've never met anyone who is as good at surviving as you. And I'm sure I've said to you before that my goal is more than just survival. I'd like to actually be living or even thriving at some point in my life. And I feel like I've just, I've glimpsed that momentarily a few times, but not many. So I do think my religious journey is not over, and I don't think it ever will be over. And I think if I ever felt like it ended, I might be disappointed. I kind of feel like the the point of the journey is the exploration. Thanks so much for listening to this, and thanks so much for being here for all of these episodes. And the next episode will be back to a regular interview like normal, but I've been thinking about this a lot, and I really wanted to kind of record these thoughts and update those those old episodes. I'm so glad you're a part of all of this. Uh, people like you who listen and the folks who sometimes comment on the things that they hear on this show, they make it so worthwhile to do it, and they make me feel like I am, in fact, part of something bigger, and I really appreciate that. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back with you next time on A Brief Chat.